Thank you, brother. When I first saw Paul, I was wondering if he was a Christian. But after hearing him speak this afternoon, I am sure he is not a Christian. Those of you who are up in the front are supposed to be between the ages of 18 and 35. The ushers will be carting you. Brother Tony Dale has graciously given me 55 minutes to speak, and I, I do appreciate the extra time, but that reminds me of a story. There was a pastor once who was designing a new church building, and for many years his entire congregation would always sit in the back row, and they always left the building at 12 noon sharp. So as he was designing this new church building, he had something done to the pews that nobody knew about. So Sunday morning came, the pastor stood in his pulpit, and all of his congregation were sitting in the back as usual, and he pushed a button, and the pews began moving forward. <laughs> and the front ones were disappearing into the floor. So now he had them all in front of him for the first time. And at one minute till 12, he thought to himself, well, I've got him here, so I'm going to run overtime. And as soon as the clock struck 12, a trap door opened and he fell through it. <laughs> With that in mind, I will do my best to stop speaking in 55 minutes. I would like to uh, say a word of appreciation for the people who put this conference on and invited me to speak. I have great respect for Tony and Felicity Dale. And I have great respect for all of the sisters and brothers who helped put this conference on. I have great respect for this conference. And I am honored to be here. So I want to thank you. Let me say a few words about my background. I left the institutional church at the age of 23. How many of you are in your 20s? Would you raise your hand high, please? All right. Praise the Lord. I've never been back. 23 years old. Of course, today I'm 27 years old, but that's beside the point. Um, in 1993, God put two mentors in my life. One of them was a man who worked with Watchman Nee in China. And if you do not know about the work of God in China under Brother Nee, you must read a book entitled Against the Tide. It changed me as a young man. And I learned from him and some others all about the work of God in China. Both the successes and the failures. The other man had co-worked with T. Austin Sparks in England. 
And from him I learned about the work of God in England under that forgotten pioneer, T. Austin Sparks. Some of you may have never heard of him. Some years later, uh, I worked with a man who was very instrumental in the Jesus movement in the 60s and 70s. And from him and many others, I learned all about the Jesus movement. And I would dare say that many of you in this room were saved during the Jesus movement. So let's do this. If you came to the Lord between the years 1968 and 1976, raise your hand. Alright, that's the majority. In 1994, I had the privilege of meeting the man who has been called the father of the Jesus movement. His name is... Hubert Lindsay, and the hippies called him Holy Hubert, and he preached in the late 60s in Southern California on the Berkeley campus, and that man, when I met him, he was blind, he lost all his teeth, he had scars up and down his body, he was in his dying years, I understand he died four years ago. In 94, I saw that man, and I realized that those were his badges. They were his trophies. They were his medals. He had been beaten up numerous times by the Hell's Angels, and by the Manson family, and by the Black Panthers, and he lost all of his teeth, and he went blind. And that man was still kicking, even though... He's no longer with us today. I'm a student of history. I've been ever since I left the organized church, and I'm still a student of history. And there is a saying, a famous philosopher once said, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. And I'd like to repeat that again. Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. And I believe that statement with all of my heart. What I would like to do if we had the time is to give you a crash course in the history of Christians who have met outside the institutional church from 1830 to the present day. But we don't have the time to do that. So you can call this message the house church movement, learning from the past, Pioneering for the future. And what I have done is I have listed 14 of the major mistakes that have been made by Christian movements outside the religious system since 1830 to the present. Now, brothers and sisters, we all make mistakes. So I'm not chucking rocks at anybody. Uh, the Christians who made these mistakes were good Christians and they had good motives. But I'll tell you this, I believe that if we don't do our homework and learn what those mistakes were, we will unwittingly repeat them. Can I get a tiny amen on that? Well, here they are. They are in no particular order, and they imply no particular priority. Number one. A spirit of sectarianism and elitism. Adopting 
a spirit of sectarianism and elitism. Brothers and sisters, this spirit is what has destroyed most of the great works of God that have gone on in the past. And as strange as it may sound, those groups of Christians who have more light, more revelation, and more depth are more susceptible to being elitist and sectarian. And as painfully ironic as it is, most of the Christian movements that were raised up by God in the past, who turned out to be sectarian and elitist, started as a reaction against sectarianism and elitism. I know four movements right now. They're still on the earth today. And they began taking a stand against sectarianism and elitism. And today, brothers and sisters, they are the most sectarian and elitist groups I have ever met. It is possible to be captured by the same spirit you oppose. I'm going to repeat that. It's possible to be captured by the same spirit you oppose. I have made the statement a number of times, sectarianism and elitism are like body odor. The people who have it don't know it, but everyone else can smell it a mile away. I appreciate you laughing at that. I'm going to give you three benchmarks for a sectarian and elitist group. One. They believe that only their church and their movement are the only authentic church and movement that exist. Only their churches that are part of their movement are the real deal. Number two, they believe that only the Christian workers that are part of their movement are the only authentic Christian workers on the planet. And three, they are monumentally disinterested in any other work of God and any other church and any other movement outside of their own. Brothers and sisters, we have not so learned Jesus Christ. Mistake number two, failure to have a biblical basis for our church practice and our church planting this mistake still plagues us today. There is a great need for a strong, comprehensive, biblical foundation for what we do. And if we don't have that, brothers and sisters, we have made the same fundamental error that the institutional church has made. And that is, it has no biblical merit. It has no biblical support. Mistake number three Failure to make Jesus Christ central and supreme and preeminent in the church and failure to know him corporately through ongoing spiritual encounter. And herein lies the role of the apostolic ministry. It is to equip God's people to know Jesus Christ together and to express Him corporately together. 
Failure number four. Failure to detox from an institutional and religious mindset. Sisters and brothers, the house of God is not restored by changing the meeting place. It's restored by changing the mindset. Organic churches that are planted in institutional soil do not take root. And organic churches that are planted by institutionally minded men do not take root. And I don't care to count the number of house churches or simple churches that have been saturated with an institutional mindset that have met in homes. Uh, Brothers and sisters, it's prolific. The mindset has to be dismantled. Because those who plant churches or start churches outside the organized church, if the mindset, the religious mindset and the institutional mindset hasn't been broken in them, they will instinctively reproduce what they know. You understand? It'll just happen. Unwittingly, it will happen. And this has been a great failure in my personal judgment. Mistake number five People setting out to plant and nurture churches before they have experienced organic church life themselves as non-leaders. This one, in my opinion, really sinks our ship. It's what destroyed the Jesus movement in the mid-70s. There were men who took leadership among organic churches and communities and they did not have any experience as brothers in an organic expression of the church themselves and they killed it and I would simply say to you that this failure this mistake is based on the notion that organic church life is a theory that can be learned or read in a book and then applied and brothers and sisters that's not true If you read your New Testament carefully, you will find this one thing. That every person who put their hand to the plow of raising up the church of Jesus Christ was well prepared beforehand. And they were prepared in a context of organic church life as a non-leader. And they went through fire. And they went through hell. And they went through suffering. And they were broken. And they were ready and prepared. And they were sent And they were not reproducing a theory or a scheme or a method or a technique. But they were giving birth to the living body of Christ in local expression because they experienced it themselves. And they were able to navigate God's people through all the problems that they will have in meeting this way because they went through it themselves. Uh, You may disagree with me, but I have made... An observation. And I think it's a, it's a profound error that we have made in the house church movement. We have assumed that because the professional clergy has no root in the New Testament, which it doesn't, that therefore that means that any Christian anywhere at any time is called 
equipped and gifted to carry on any aspect of God's work, including the raising up of the church. Brothers and sisters, the New Testament cannot, will not hold that. Every Christian is gifted. Every Christian has ministry and every Christian is is a minister. But we don't all have the same calling. We don't have the same gift. And it's dangerous to step out of your calling and your gift. Problems happen when we do that. And even if you're called and you're gifted in a particular aspect of God's work, say it is to raise up the church and plant the church, there's preparation. And if we jump the gun and we're not prepared, well, I'll tell you what will happen. I'll put it in a sentence. Listen to this. What men build with their gifts, they can just as quickly destroy by their character. We all don't have the same calling and the same gift, and thank God. There are some things, quite honestly, that you would be out of your mind to want to be called to as a Christian. So, brothers and sisters, I believe that this is something that we need to re-examine. We need to go back and find out what is God's way on this. And let's follow it. Because if we think we're wise enough to improve upon it, I think we've made a mistake. Remember the Jesus movement and what happened there. It did not have to die. But men put their hand to the plow who were not qualified and not called to it. They did not have the preparation to do it. And they end up killing it. And I've seen this happen in our time. Mistake number six. The failure of Christian workers to learn from one another and to work together. Now that's a good place to say amen. If you're still awake out there. This is a huge problem that we face today. And I I wish we had more time where I can open it up. But I don't. Now, I can get hung for this next one. Mistake number seven. Sisters, listen. The suppression of women. Treating them as second-class citizens and not allowing them to function freely in meetings nor in the church's decision-making process. There we go. You are awake. Uh, In my judgment, we have made a staggering, monumental mistake here, brothers and sisters. I believe that if the men in movements of God in the past had the sense enough listen to the sisters they wouldn't have made the mistakes that they have made I heard three sisters say amen to that my goodness I may be in the wrong place here folks mistake number eight allowing a group of elders to rule the church and do most of the ministry In such cases, the elders become a new class of clergy, no matter what you want to call it. Mistake number nine. I'm out on a limb here, folks, and sawing hard. (laughs) 
allowing the practices of the charismatic movement of the 60s and 70s to shape the tone, the behavior, the songs, the vocabulary, and the expression of the church in the 21st century. All right, I appreciate that. Now, if you don't know what I'm talking about, you up here in front, don't worry about it. You don't want to know. And I say that as someone who has a charismatic background and believes in all the gifts of the Spirit functioning. I'm talking about the expression. Uh, Mistake number 10, basing our church practice on a biblical blueprint mentality. This blueprint is constructed by sewing together isolated proof texts to create an ironclad church model. (laughs) And the New Testament becomes the new Leviticus, and we're all under the law to do what we think it says. And uh, just a few simple words about this, brothers and sisters. The New Testament is not a rule book. It is a record of the DNA of the church at work. That insight alone, if we could open it up, has monumental ramifications for how we practice the church and how we practice church planting. Mistake number 11, lots of talk about community when in reality God's people are held deep within the vice grips of modern individualism. And I see this everywhere I go. Community, 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 and uh, the saints meet once a week. And they live their own individualistic lives. Young brothers and sisters, there's a higher way. And this is a problem endemic to Americans, by the way. It's very hard to break. Mistake number 12, failure to understand the triune God as the model and the paradigm for organic church life. I will simply say this, that properly conceived, the church is the earthly image of the triune God. And I wish I had two hours to open that up because it is staggering in its meaning. Mistake number 13, the tendency to become ingrown and insular and to forget that there's a lost world that needs Jesus Christ. And house churches have struggled with this since they've existed. But mistake number 14 is in reaction to the previous mistake. And it is this, to make the sole purpose of the church the winning of souls I got one amen on that one there is a tendency in the house church movement to pit the idea that the church is missional against the idea that the church is relational and communitarian and I've watched Christian leaders in the house church movement debate over this which is it? Inreach or outreach? Inreach or outreach? And they're pitted against each other. Well, I would like to offer what I believe is an antidote to that unhealthy tension. Can I do that? It is an understanding the seasonal nature of the church. The church, she is an organism. She is organic. As such, she passes through seasons. There is a season for outreach. There is a season 
for evangelism. There is a season for outward mission. But there's also a season for inreach and the building of the body and the building and the equipping of the community. And brothers and sisters, if we need anything, we need to learn how to discern the season of the church. And know when that season has begun. And know when that season has ended. Now we open up the book of Acts and we see within five pages miracles and evangelism and we think, we assume that that happened within a week's time every day of the church for years and years. That's not true. Luke in the book of Acts crams years in just a few pages. And there are years that separate some of those events. And if you look at the narrative of the first century church carefully, you'll find that there were seasons where the church did nothing but pray. There were seasons where the church did nothing but build itself up. There were seasons where the church went out and evangelized. There were seasons of miracles. They all didn't come. They weren't happening every day. This is an assumption we have made because we have not read the New Testament chronologically. So, brothers and sisters, take that for what it's worth. Okay. That's a brief sketch. Fourteen mistakes. And I wish we had three hours to expand each one. Each one deserves more comment. But on the heels of that, I would like to challenge us in the house church movement to take higher ground. Brothers and sisters, I believe very strongly that we need a new mountain to stand on. We need a fresh vision of the church and what she is, and how she is to be restored. And we also need to go back and learn the past. Because if we don't, we will unwittingly repeat those mistakes. Here is where I've put my stake in the ground. We will make mistakes. But my goodness, can we make new ones? So my question here is, how do we pioneer for the future? What I'm going to be saying from now on until the end of this message are, well, there are things that I care very deeply about. And they reflect my own heart and ministry. Nonetheless, I believe that we have got to take them seriously. I hope you will take each one to the Lord and give it serious consideration. I feel we really need to interact with them. It would be a colossal failure in my personal judgment of my time here if I presented what I'm going to present and you thought it was interesting and you left this conference and forgot one word I said. So I am depending and leaning hard on the Lord to keep this alive. It's one of the reasons why I'm going to hand something out to you so you will have it in writing. I would like to present to you eight challenges for the house church movement over the next decade. What does that take us to? 2017. And by the graces and mercies of God, if we could pay attention to these things and accept these challenges, I believe with all my heart we will have a profound impact on this earth, on the body of Christ, and the future generations who will look back at us to the pages of history. Okay, you ready? Two people are ready to hear this. <laughs> you know, it's lonely up here. I really wish.
wish you would talk to me more. <laughs> Challenge number one, let's construct a solid biblical basis for our church practices and our church planting. I believe that much of what we're doing in our house churches has no scriptural merit. It has about as much biblical merit as does the institutional church. Now, I'm going to repeat that again. I didn't say everything we do. I said much of what we do. It's my observation. Now, when I say construct a biblical basis, here's what I mean. I do not mean going into the New Testament and picking out verses here and there and patching them together and creating a doctrine or a basis for our practice. We've been doing that. We have been doing that. We've been doing that since 1830. You know you can prove anything by taking verses out of the scripture and putting them together. You can prove anything. You can prove the institutional church if you want. I am suggesting this, that we take a totally new approach and we look for the narrative of the first century church. The narrative, the story. Chronologically, the narrative. And we build our church practice and we build our church planting methods on that narrative. And brothers and sisters, I believe if we did that, it would be tremendous for our future. Much of what we do today, quite honestly, I believe, comes out of our own schemes, our own techniques, our own ideas, and our own experimentations. And we have lots of theories. But can we construct a biblical basis and have a strong foundation in the Word of God? So I challenge you all, learn the narrative and build your practices on it. Challenge number two. Let's rediscover God's eternal purpose and give our lives to it. Sisters and brothers, there is no reason at all why a house church should exist except to stand for God's eternal purpose. There's no reason at all why a house church should be planted except to fulfill God's eternal purpose. And I will say this to you, that the eternal purpose of God goes far beyond the salvation of souls. Deep within God's beating heart, He has an ultimate passion. He has an eternal purpose. And it goes beyond salvation. And I'll tell you what, it goes beyond the meeting of our needs as humans. He has something for himself that he wants. And boy, that's hard to take as American Western Christians. Because our gospel is very me-centered, or it's centered on the needs of other human beings. And that's fine. But what about God's purpose, which is for himself? Now, I'm sure some of you, especially in the front, are saying, all right, Brother Frank, that sounds great. What is God's eternal purpose? My answer to you is this. It's too big. I have been speaking on it since 1992, and I have yet to figure out a way to define it in less than five hours. And I'm serious when I say that. It is too glorious. It is too large. It is too magnificent. So I'm going to leave you with something. As far as I know, there have been three books written in this century that comprehensively deal with God's eternal purpose. And the key word there is comprehensive. And those three books are as follows. 
Number one, a book that was written in 1939 called The Stewardship of the Mystery by T. Austin Sparks. Incredible unveiling of God's eternal purpose. The second book was written in 1963 by a man named Deverne Franke. It is called Ultimate Intention. Now, I would dare say that many of you in this room have read it. Can I make a suggestion? Read it again. And I'll tell you why. Because most of the people who I've met who've read it didn't get it. Does that make any sense to you? You know, it's possible to read a book and not get it. I am the author of many books that have been written where people have read it and not gotten it. And I take that as a, a, a shortcoming of mine. <laughs> By the way, that was supposed to be funny, but it didn't work. Um, the third book was written in 2006. It is entitled God's Ultimate Passion by Frank Viola. And it is, it is a weak, weak frail attempt at explaining something that is beyond our understanding yet I took a shot at it would you please discover what God's eternal purpose is please and allow your life to be shaped by it and give your life to it and suffer for it if you have to I believe that there's nothing worth wasting your life on but the very intent of God from the beginning before creation. His ultimate passion, His eternal purpose, that which is in the center of His very beating heart. And dear brothers and sisters, you ought to say amen to this, but the truth of the matter is we hardly hear anybody speak on it today. Amen. 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 All right, challenge number three. Let's give. Let's give the Lord Jesus Christ the place of centrality, supremacy, and preeminence in our house churches. And I wish we can camp for the rest of the weekend on that one point. Now, let me unveil my heart here. Every house church, every church would claim to make Christ central. But saying that you're Christ-centered doesn't mean that you're Christ-centered. Would you agree with that? Let me put it this way. The church ought not to specialize in anything except for the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing else. And we've got house churches today that specialize in evangelism. We got house churches that specialize in helping the poor, inner healing, spiritual gifts, Bible study, missions to lepers, you name it. She ought not to have any specialization except for Jesus Christ. And everything that she does ought to come out of a personal revelation, encounter, and relationship with Him. But he is her only specialty. 
Nothing else ought to be our center, brothers and sisters. And I've got two stories to tell you about what it means to make Christ central. And one of them I'm very proud of. It was the first church I planted years ago. I uh, had worked with them laying a foundation for almost a year and a half. And I left them on their own without any leaders, without any facilitators. I just walked out. I had no contact with them for six months. While I was gone, a group of charismatics visited them. Uh, they went to one of their meetings. They sat through the meeting, and afterwards everyone went to lunch. And during the course of the conversation, the, these it was two brothers, charismatic, they made the observation, they said, um, we loved your meeting, but all you talked about was Jesus Christ. And all you sung about was Jesus Christ. And I think one of the gentlemen said, I think I counted 80 times where Jesus Christ was mentioned. But what about the Holy Spirit? We didn't hear anybody talk about Him. Do you not believe in the Holy Spirit? And one of the young men in the church, 25 years old, answered with wisdom that exceeded his age. He said, well, I guess it's because the Holy Spirit only has one thing to talk about. <laughs> and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, you want to see a church that's full of the Holy Spirit? You will see a church that is obsessed with, consumed with, saturated with, possessed with nothing but Christ. Amen. Here's another story. I have a friend who lives in Colorado Springs, dear man. The Lord gave him a story, and I think it's one of the most inspired things I've ever heard in my life. He said, every year, three people come together and all they do is weep. Mary, the Holy Spirit, and the Bible. And they weep. And Mary says, I brought him into this world. I gave him life on this planet. But they have worshipped me and taken glory away from my son. The Holy Spirit weeping says, I came into this world not to speak of myself. I came to hide myself. I came to reveal him. To magnify Him, to glorify Him, to exalt Him, to show men who He was, His greatness, His glory, His wonder, His beauty. But they, they have enthroned me. And the Bible weeping says, I came to point men and women to Him. All of my arrows point in one direction, and that is to Him, but they have made a God out of me. Brothers and sisters, making Jesus Christ central, specializing in nothing but Christ means that He is the subject of your conversations. He is the subject of your ministry. He is the subject of your meetings. He is the subject of your songs. He is the subject of your sharing. 
You share, you sing, you speak, you minister one thing, and it's not a thing, it's a person. And herein lies the role of the apostolic ministry, brothers and sisters. It is to reveal Christ in such a way that God's people are drowning with a revelation of Him and fall in love with Him and are so possessed by Him they have nothing else to talk about. And that was the secret of the early Christians. They fell in love with a person, caused them to fall in love with one another, and it rocked the world. And that's why they were called Christians, because they always spoke about Christ. Well, I want to say something else about this. It's possible to make Christ central in our rhetoric, but to deny Him in our attitude. What I mean by that is this church can sing about Jesus Christ all day and all night. They can speak about Jesus Christ all day and all night. They can talk about being Christ-centered all day and all night. But if they are elitist and sectarian, they are not Christ-centered. And there are a few things, brothers and sisters, that are, are so opposite of the spirit of Jesus Christ as sectarianism and elitism. In fact, they are the twin children of self-righteousness. And if you didn't know this, the greatest sin of all sins, the one that trumps everyone, is self-righteousness. That's in the New Testament, by the way. All right. Challenge number four. Let's be humble enough to admit when our house churches are having problems and receive outside help from those who have experience in organic church life. I want to tell you a story about something that happened at last year's conference. I had lunch with one of the brothers who was speaking uh, in the conference last year. And for me, it was one of the highlights of the whole conference. It was one. there There were actually about ten highlights. But this was one of them. (laughs) Um, We were sitting over lunch, and he was telling me about the the network of house churches he works with. And I asked him this question. I said, Brother, I'm fascinated. I want to learn all about this. Um, I said, if I visited your network of house churches for a week, and I attended every meeting, and I was a fly on the wall, and I watched them from beginning to end, what would I see? Give me a description. And uh, he looked straight into my eyes and he said, Well, Frank, I think you'd be very disappointed. And right there, that spoke volumes about that man. He won my respect. He was humble enough to admit that he didn't have the greatest house churches since the creation of the planet and that they were having problems. Would to God that we all would be so humble and honest. And I have watched more house churches die. I mean, bite the dust. And sometimes it's been pretty bad because they were too proud to receive any kind of outside help. Brothers and sisters, may we not be so unwise. 
may we take advantage of those who are laboring in the fields of God's work and who have experience. This is a New Testament pattern, by the way. No man thought it up. And it is a challenge that we would be humble enough to receive such help. Challenge number five. That Christian workers would humble themselves enough to co-work with other workers who aren't part of their particular stream or movement. That Christian workers would humble themselves enough to co-work with other workers who aren't part of their particular stream or movement. If you're a Christian worker, I don't care how gifted you are, you have limitations. I don't care how knowledgeable you are, you have weaknesses. I don't care how experienced you are, you have shortcomings. And you're very foolish to limit your own ministry to what's in your own skull and your own experience. There are three brothers from Richmond. I'm not going to ask them to stand up. But there's a brother Thomas, a brother Don, and a brother Richard. And I have met these men not too long ago. But I'll tell you something, they understand the importance and the necessity of workers co-working and working together. And I say this to every Christian worker listening to this. Would you take your cue from these brothers? I want to recommend a book. To every person that's involved in the Lord's work church planting ministering to churches traveling it's called What Shall This Man Do by Watchman Nee if you have read that book or any part of it would you raise your hand slip your hand up I just want to see now this is not well known it is not a well known book that's what this is telling us I, I think five six people have read it you can get it at any Christian bookstore Life-changing. Thank you, brother. It is a discussion on the ministry, the apostolic ministry of Peter, Paul, and Mary. No, just kidding. Peter, Paul. I want to see if you're awake. Peter, Paul, and John. And what me does is he opens up the scripture and he shows you how their ministries were different yet complementary. Let me run that by again. They were different. They were very different, but they were complementary. Now, we Christians have been taught that diversity means disunity. That if somebody's different, they have a different view, well, then we have disunity. Brothers and sisters, you know what the New Testament teaches? Diversity is a sign of fullness. Look at your body. Look how diverse it is. It's a sign of fullness. And that's one of the things I so appreciate about this conference. This is the only house church conference that I know of that allows a venue for diverse ministries in the house church movement. I know of none other. And the reason is, is because it's a lot easier to have everybody speaking the same exact thing, saying it the same way. And that's what most of us do in the Christian world. And we regard diversity to be disunity. And it's not, brothers and sisters. a sign of fullness. Would to God that the Peters, the Johns, and the Pauls would find ways to work together. That's my heart. 
Uh, we're almost through. Challenge number six. Let's raise the bar on the songs we sing in our house churches. Now, I have made an observation that many house churches sing. Most of the songs they sing are what I would call 7-Eleven songs. That's seven lines sung 11 times. <laughs> and if you like that, that's fine. But I'll tell you this. The greatest songs I have ever sung in my life did not come from the vineyard. They didn't come from Maranatha Music or Integrity or whoever you want to name. They came from the pen they came from the pen of brothers and sisters who were living in organic church life who were non-professional musicians. And they wrote them out of the soil of body life. And those songs, I, I am as honest as I can be, trump anything I've ever heard in the institutional church. Amen. Do you know that the early Christians wrote their own songs? And do you know that they were profoundly Christ-centered and they had great depth? And they were experiential. They were written out of the soil of their experience of Christ and the body of Christ. Don't do it now, but read Colossians 1 and Philippians 2. You have two Christian hymns there. Would to God that we would take our cue from the early Christians and write our own songs. Now you say, Brother Frank, I can't write a song. Well... I have learned that any Christian can write a song if they're taught how. There's a CD in the back. It's called Having Open Meetings and Building Community, and it will teach you how to write a song. In fact, it'll teach you how to do it in pairs. And it gives examples of songs written by brothers and sisters who meet in ordinary house church, simple church, organic church, whatever you want to call it, outside the walls of the institution. And they'll blow your mind. Homegrown songs right out of the soil of a life of the church. Centered on Christ and with depth. It can be done, and brothers and sisters, I challenge you, let's raise the bar on it. There are songs that are waiting to be written out of your experience of Christ in the church. I want to make a suggestion. And I won't be offended if we don't do it. It's just an idea. You know what I'd love to see? I'd love to see at some future conference where Christians outside the organized church come together and one of the things they do in at least one of the sessions is they bring the songs that their churches have written and they sing them and teach them to one another. How rich would that be? Would that not be awesome? So can I leave that challenge at your feet? Challenge number seven. This is especially for those involved in church planting. I want to admonish you to do your homework and learn your history. I want to challenge you to study the history of Christians who met outside the organized church. Brothers and sisters, we have a very, very rich heritage. We are standing on the shoulders of giants. There were those who have gone before us 
forgotten pioneers and they blazed trails and they set down ancient landmarks. And we are very foolish to ignore their contribution. I believe we have a responsibility to turn back and see what they discovered and where they left off. I can tell you this, I read their stories as a young man. I learned about their passion for God's purpose and for the restoration of His house. I learned about their discoveries. I learned about their suffering, their heart, their sacrifice. Some of these Christians experienced blood up to the horse's bit in their conviction to have the church as God would have it. They stood for a testimony. They bore a testimony. And it was not in vain. For they were a witness to the ways and the work of God. And they left their story behind. And it is to that work and it is to those ways that we must return. Their stories changed me as a young man. Profoundly changed my life. And I believe it will do the same for you if you would just take the time to read their story. There are a number of books written on their story. One of them is called The Pilgrim Church. And again, I will say, Against the Tide is another. Learn what they learn, brothers and sisters. Study your roots. Do not think that what we're doing is something new. There is a trail of blood that has preceded us. And if we are wise, we will stand on their shoulders and see further than they did. God is merciful to us. And that brings me to challenge number eight. Let's find ways to reach out to the young people in this generation. Young unbelievers and young Christians alike. And I'm defining young to be between 18 and 35. I have made an observation over the last five years as I've traveled and visited house churches across the United States and spoken in house church conferences. And it is this, that the vast, vast, vast majority of people who are meeting in homes today, in our country at least, are between the ages of 48 and 65. And if you would just look around this room, you ought to say amen. There are very few young people between the ages of 18 and 35 who are meeting outside the religious system. And uh, I spoke with Brother Tony Dale not too long ago and we compared notes on this. And he said the exact same thing. I've seen the exact same thing. You know, most of you are from the Jesus movement. That's where you got saved. And you know what you're doing? You're returning home. And so as I travel and as I observe this, I keep thinking to myself, I keep asking myself, where are the young men and the young women who are not 
wasting their youth on the institutional church or on a parachurch organization. But who have given their lives to God's eternal purpose and who are wasting their youth on the experience of the body of Christ. I ask myself, where are the young men and young women who burn for Jesus Christ and who have had a vision of His house restored? Where are the young men and young women who are humble enough to bring their ambitions to the cross and learn Christ and experience His body before they go out and try to start their own work. Where are they? That's my heart. I was a young man at 23 years old who left the institutional church and I had no mentors at that time. In fact, I didn't even know there was anybody doing what we endeavored to do. Where are they? May God raise up young men and young women in our generation who are driven to see the headship of Christ restored on this planet and who will give their lives to that. Well, I close on that point. And I want to read the words of a timeless hymn. I'm pressing on the upward way. New heights I'm gaining every day. And saying as I'm upward bound, Lord, take me on to higher ground. Lord, lift me up and let me stand. Upon the heights of Canaan's land, the highest plain that can be found. Lord, plant my feet on higher ground. Brothers and sisters, the next page of church history is blank. Would you take a little responsibility to write on that page? And what will we write on it? May we in the house church movement take higher ground. And may we write on that page a higher vision, a higher standard, a higher revelation, a higher experience. And may we write on that page some new mistakes that have never been made in the past. And if we can pull that off, we will have something significant to give this world and to leave for future generations. Amen. I'm finished. Frank, thank you so much for opening your heart to us. We, we really, really appreciate it.